Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. Find more episodes and subscribe on your favorite platforms. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com. In this episode of Writing Matters, I speak with Jennifer Saravallo. I've known of Jennifer's work through the Teachers College Reading and Writing Project, as well as her work as a Heinemann author. During our conversation, we talked quite a bit about educational equity, what it means for students, for teachers trying to implement a reading and writing workshop, and for teachers' own professional learning. Welcome to Writing Matters. Today, we speak with Jen Saravallo, who is a consultant and a literacy coach and the author of a number of books, including a translation and adaptation of her writing strategies book, which will be coming out in Spanish very soon. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Welcome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the invitation to talk with you. I'm a big fan of your work, and so it's great to connect this way. Absolutely. Well, thank you. And as a way to begin the conversation and and for you to share a little bit about yourself, tell us about your path and how you uh, became an educator and how you've gotten to this point in your career. And maybe even a little bit about what your day-to-day life looks like, although I'm sure no two days are ever the same for you as a literacy consultant. No, that's true. Um, So I fell in love with teaching in in college, it was the first time I really decided I wanted to be a teacher. Although I have to say that even as a young child, I used to draw what I imagined my classroom would look like. So there's probably some bit, you know, even as a young child, that I wanted to be a teacher. Um, I left college and went straight to New York, and I taught in two different public schools in New York City, which were both amazing experiences and very different. Um, each of the schools, in terms of the leadership, the collaboration between colleagues. Um, And at the second school I worked at, we were, uh, what, like 10 or 15 blocks from Teachers College, and we were fortunate to have uh, staff developers from TC come in, and it completely transformed my teaching. Not only the quality of my teaching got a lot better, um, I understood so much more about reading process and writing process, but also as an educator, I just felt so engaged and uh, treated as a professional in a way that that I hadn't been in my previous school. Um, And so I just really loved professional development, like as a concept, I loved participating in professional development as a teacher. And um, after some time, I got invited to go and work at Teachers College um, in the role of staff developer. So I did that for a while, um, working with Lucy Calkins and Kathleen Tolan and all the amazing staff developers at TC, Um, traveled around the country, worked throughout New York City and um, surrounding suburbs. And got to see so many different kinds of schools and participated in weekly think tanks at the college um, with everybody. And at some point, I wrote my first book, and then I wrote another, and then Mm. (laughs) I had a second baby, and I moved to the suburbs, and I decided to kind of leave the project and do consulting on my own. And so I've been doing that for about seven years now. And you're right that my schedule never looks the same. Some weeks I have a lot of days at home where I'm writing. This week is like that. Or writing slash talking to people about my writing, I guess. Um, Some weeks I'm traveling. So like last week I was at ILA um, in New Orleans. Some weeks I'm working in schools, coaching teachers. um, And I love the variety. I love the different kind of ways that I work with teachers and work with students and do my own thinking and writing and learning too. So. 
Absolutely. So hearkening back to your early days and, and through your experiences as a literacy coach and now as a consultant, I know that one of the big themes that has, has driven your work is thinking about providing equitable literacy resources and instruction to all students. So tell us a little bit about that. Where, what is your current thinking? What is some of your work around that? How are you thinking about the role of equity in education? Well, as a teacher in New York City, I would have, you know, 32, 34 kids in a class and at any given point in time, there would be an enormous range of uh, writing skills and writing abilities. Um, kids are coming from all different kinds of backgrounds. And I learned in the classroom that a sort of one size fits all approach to any kind of teaching was not going to be equitable and not going to be fair at all for children. Um, and so I think that's what drew, really drew me to the workshop approach to teaching writing that, you know, yes, I do have some big ideas that I want to teach to everybody and we gather for lessons to do that. But the majority of my time is focused on what individual students need. It's focused on their individual goals. It's supporting them and helping them find their voice and helping them choose topics that really matter to them and giving them a space in the classroom um, to do that. Uh, so that is the kind of writing instruction that I try to support teachers with as I do coaching in schools, as I do speaking, and I do consulting. Um, and it's so interesting to me, I think, and I'm sure you see this too, that I, there's just so many places that still, um, you know, I'll hear from teachers, like, we don't teach writing, or, you know, we, we use writing to, um, to check understanding, maybe, right? After a unit in science, we'll have the kids write a report to check that they understood what the content that they learned. But actually teaching writing as its own subject area or teaching writing as its, um, as its own discipline is not something um, that's done everywhere. When I was at the Reading and Writing Project, it really was, obviously, everyone that was hiring us to come in and help them, they were doing it. So mm -hmm. now in my, you know, my last seven years consulting in different kinds of schools and visiting states I hadn't visited before, um, I see much more kind of variety in, in, um, mm -hmm. in how that's going. Um, yeah. I also think that um, our students and our teachers need to really have access to a wide variety of voices in, um, in terms of who's leading this, the conversations around writing instruction. And so um, one of the things that I'm really trying to do now is learn a lot, read a lot, follow a lot um, by leaders who are helping me kind of see some of my own gaps or see some of the things that I haven't been aware of, um, who are really standing up for and advocating for all students and uh, do what I can to sort of amplify or um, you know, share uh, some of what they're bringing to the table and what kinds of uh, perspectives and opinions they have um, so that all kids are really seen and all kids have an opportunity to you know, achieve excellence and, and, mm -hmm. um, and grow as much as they can um, as students, as writers. Right. Oh, I want to drill into quite a few things about what you just said and, and come back to this last point about equity, both for the teachers as well as mm -hmm. for the students. You, you mentioned that there are many places um, that are still at different stages with their own writing instruction. And I, I wonder if you could 
talk a little bit about that from a systematic perspective. Like what, what do you think has to happen within the school or within the school leadership to move toward this uh, kind of reading writing workshop approach? And then what has to happen for individual educators? Because it is a mindset shift and, and it's uncomfortable to suddenly be opening up your classroom and knowing that kids are going to be at all different stages and places in the writing process. So mm-hmm. how do you see that from those two fronts? How do you see it from the school perspective structurally? And then mm-hmm. how do you see that from the individual educators perspective as well? Okay. There's a lot of, a lot of things are thinking as you're asking the question. So we'll see what I can remember from what I was yeah. thinking. So yeah. one thing I think is that, um, unfortunately a lot of what's driving decisions in schools is what's being mm-hmm. tested. And um, I'm a pretty vocal critic of a lot of standardized testing in general, um, but the fact that many of standardized tests that, that are you know, common in, in states across the country don't have a very big writing task. I mean, some have writing tasks, some of them are sort of formulaic writing tasks, they're not really authentic writing. I think sometimes people say, oh, well, if it's not tested, we're not gonna make space and time for it in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And that's um, a big, a big miss, honestly, because um, developing kids as writers uh, helps them in a lot of ways, you know, because of writing, but it also helps them to become better and stronger readers. So I think it's a miss. Um, another thing I think, you know, related to that is just time, you know, how much time teachers have in the school day and all of the additional mandates and things that they're being asked to do. I think um, people have to make tough choices, have to cut some things have to kind of weed out their garden a little bit and figure out Mm -hmm. what's going to stay and what's going to leave. And a lot of times that's driven by leadership. Leadership tells them how to spend their time or or what kinds of things to be focusing on. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I think another big um, possible impediment to getting writing workshop or real quality writing instruction happening everywhere is teachers own comfort with writing themselves. And I'm sure you see this too, is that, mm-hmm. um, you know, if teachers weren't taught in this way as students, or they didn't have, um, you know, a methods class in college where they really got to explore mm-hmm. their own voice and write in a variety of genres. I mean, I mean, a lot of teachers who maybe are familiar with a certain type of essay, like the traditional five paragraph school essay, um, or that they write reports but that they've never really tried writing fiction before or writing poetry before or creating a fairy tale. And so when they're, um, you know, when they're trying to teach that to students, um, helping teachers find their own writing voice and helping them to do their own writing and feel comfort with it, I think is a first step. And that means that they need professional development, which is another potential impediment, right? Is that there's some districts where there is not really a PD budget or their, their sense of PD is a one day training day where it's an in-service day where the kids aren't in session, but the teachers are. And so I think a real commitment to ongoing job embedded professional development where teachers can practice writing, where they can plan, where they can study mentor texts and they can get comfortable with it is going to make teachers, um, you know, more likely to include it in their day. And then once they see the impact on students, both as in their students' writing and in their students' reading, I think that will help sell for them the idea that it's, it's got to have a prominent place in the classroom. I feel like I said a lot there. I rambled a lot. Oh, <laughs> There's a lot of different well, topics. Yeah. Well, and it's all, it's all super important because, yes, it's structural. There are pressures. We have to be honest that there are pressures. And then helping 
have that leadership and then helping teachers see those moments. And so I'm wondering, and, and maybe, maybe this is a, a difficult question to even kind of think about because I'm sure every conversation is different, but it's one thing to be standing in front of the staff and say, oh, let's do this and let's model. And, and like when you're in workshop mode and teaching mode, but what happens when you sit down with that individual teacher who says, I, I just don't know if I'm ready to move to this form of instruction. I don't feel confident as a writer. I don't know about genre. Mm-hmm. What do those conversations sound like when you're sitting shoulder to shoulder with an individual teacher? How do you encourage uh, him or her to make this move and take this risk? What does that look like and feel like for you? Well, with my style of professional development is kind of similar to my style with kids, which is Mm. to focus on one thing at a time, teach strategies, make it concrete, make it doable, and then Mm. move on to another thing. And I think um, one thing I'm always trying to do with kids and with teachers is to look at what they're already doing, look at what their strengths are, Mm. see where they are comfortable, and then think about what's a little bit of a nudge from where, where you are now. So the real answer to your question with that particular teacher is I would, it would depend what I would do next, depending on what I noticed in that teacher's classroom. And so mm-hmm. I might, for example, point out, well, I noticed that you already have, um, you know, maybe that teacher really loves uh, children's uh, picture books. And I might say, I know you love these children's picture books and I'm sure you love them as stories, but maybe we could also, you know, appreciate them from a writing perspective. And maybe what we could do is just start with looking at writing together. And during read aloud time, what if we talked a bit about the story, but then we also invited kids to look back at it and try to study it as a writer. Maybe we just start there, right? Or, or if it's a teacher who's assigning a lot of Uh, research reports in the content areas, I might say, well, you're already having your kids do a lot of writing. You're doing, and then do informational writing. It seems like that's where you might be most comfortable. What if we took informational writing, um, you know, a genre you already have some comfort around and think about ways to elevate the writing. Think about what strategies we can include and try to teach some writing specific, writing craft specific strategies to your students. So those are just two examples. But I think I would say, I would want to start with what, where the teacher is comfortable Mm-hmm. And I hope that if you talk to teachers that I staff develop, they would say that I give mm-hmm. them things in manageable chunks. I try not to overwhelm. I make it doable. Um, and I make them feel successful. And that's what I try to do with kids too. see where they are, see what's a little bit of a nudge ahead, make them feel successful. Um, I think going in and kind of trying to ask someone to overhaul everything they're doing, like let's say it's a school that has um, been using a basal reader program for years and Mm -hmm. I'm like, let's throw the basal reader out. Let's do reading and reading Mm -hmm. workshop. Like that's not really my style because I think people panic. As all teachers, I think go into this job because they love children and they want to be effective, right? They want kids to learn and grow. We all are motivated by seeing our students succeed. And so asking somebody to completely overhaul or throw everything out and start, start fresh um, is going to make them feel like they're not good at it. And that's not going to set anyone up for success, kids or teachers. So, Absolutely. Well, and I think the flip side of that coin, too, I'll, I'll often say, you know, I, I don't think anybody went into education either to hurt or otherwise, <laughs> you know, make kids feel bad about themselves and yet our systems and the pressures and things like that often end up doing just those things. So Mm -hmm. I think what I hear you saying, I love this idea that you notice and that you nudge and then that you kind of push them to, to build on what they're already doing. 
I, I think that's really important advice. It's those small moments, it's those individual conversations, it's the ways in which we can help support students as well as teachers as colleagues um, to make those changes and move in those new directions. That's all mm -hmm. really important. Yeah. So, you know, thinking a little bit more broadly and coming back to this question about equity, clearly there's so much in the world of writing instruction that we need to be thinking about. And this connects somewhat to your book, which is a uh, you called it a translation and an adaptation of your writing strategies and reading strategies book. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit more about that process and maybe a little bit more about why you feel that's important, especially for teachers who are teaching second language learners, and then also more broadly how that fits into your, your interest in equity um, across education. So um, my reading and writing strategies books were translated into Chinese and into French and still not Spanish. And I kept saying, we've got to do Spanish because there's a lot of Spanish speaking kids in this country. And there's a lot of people who speak Spanish around the world, right? And um, providing this kind of instruction is a really supportive um, way to help them be independent and feel successful. And so um, I also used to work at a dual language school in New York City. I was not a dual language teacher. I'm unfortunately not fluent in Spanish, um, but a lot of my colleagues um, were involved in the dual language program. And the model that we used there was that the kids would spend um, like Monday in the English classroom, Tuesday in Spanish and back and forth. And that all of the resources that they used for all subject areas had to be available in both languages. Um, and what often happened is I saw my colleagues who were teaching the Spanish classes having to do a tremendous amount of work to translate what um, their English colleague, the English speaking colleagues had readily available to them. And it was, um, it's just, it's just not fair, right? And there's a lot of states that have passed legislation saying if there's a certain percentage of kids who speak a certain language as their first language, they have to provide some sort of bilingual education. It looks different in different states. Um, but I hear a lot from teachers saying that they're doing a lot of work translating and adapting. Um, and so I wanted to do, um, I'm really excited that um, we didn't uh, sell the translation rights to another company to do the translation. It was done within Heinemann. And so we um, had a really reputable, um, highly skilled uh, translation company called Aparicio Publishing. They're based out of Texas, um, who spearheaded it. Um, Eduardo, Patricia, they were amazing editors and they oversaw a whole team. And I also got to assemble a team of um, uh, what we call them advisors, maybe. They're people, they're coaches and bilingual educators. We had people from Texas, California, New York. Um, Florida, from different states where there's a high percentage of uh, dual language classrooms or bilingual education classrooms, um, advising us about um, everything from, you know, that's a strategy that really should be more for third grade instead of second, or how we need to make sure to include a strategy that has to do with accent marks, something very unique to Spanish, or, um, you know, advising us of which of the um, mentor text suggestions within the, within the book should be removed and replaced with a, an authentic Spanish language, an original Spanish language text. Um, and I got to be part of a lot of the conversations as well around uh, translation questions, which was really just fun for me from like a language linguistics perspective. When there, are, when there is no direct translation for a word, what would be the best next, you know, the best thing? What would be the closest to my intention? 
I, so I remember early on, one of the conversations we had was around the word engagement, that there's not really a word in Spanish that means the same thing as engagement. There's no direct translation. Mm -hmm. And so we were talking about, um, at first, the, tran the translators were using the word focus, like attentional focus, and foco, I think is how you say it, um, to mm -hmm. be a synonym for engagement. And I said, well, it's not really just focus. I really want a word that says that your heart is in it and your mind is in it. Like, that it's not just your like forcing yourself to do it, but that you care about it. And so we kind of like bantered around for a bit and tried to find, they really cared that they were matching my intention um, in terms of language. So um, it, was, it was really fun for me to be a part of that. And I think maybe I learned a little bit of Spanish along the way too. Um, yeah, yeah, it was, it was great. It was a great process. So I'm really excited that it's, that the reading strategies book is out in Spanish already and the writing one's coming really soon. Um, so it was a, awesome process and I'm, I'm excited to see it in the hands of Spanish language teachers. Oh, that's amazing. And, yeah. and I want to broaden that scope and let's talk about that from an equity perspective, but I have a really specific question. So you said, <laughs> as you added new lessons, for instance, this one lesson on using accent marks, mm -hmm. how did that then inform your teaching in English? Did, did you now, do you now start to think, oh, well, maybe I could create another mini lesson about maybe not accent marks, but about mm -hmm. different types of punctuation and mm -hmm. using things more strategically? How, how did what you learned about the Spanish language now inform what you're doing as you're creating new mini lessons and ideas in English? Are, are there other examples? That oh, gosh, I don't have? know. I don't know if, I, I don't know if that's so much the case or if it was just that I was reminded of some of my lessons from high school Spanish, <laughs> like oh, okay. where to place the emphasis of words or, um, you know, the, the way that vowels, kind of the diphthongs and vowel usage in, in some Spanish words. So I was reminded of some of my Spanish, uh, thank you, Senor Highland from, from high school Spanish. <laughs> um, uh, but has it informed other strategies I teach in English? I mean, you know, I say this, the subtitle of the strategies book books are your everything guide to developing skilled readers or skilled writers. And I say right in the beginning that it's not literally everything. That's that 300 strategies is not all that there is in the world. And all the time I am on the spot with kids coming up with new strategies based on what I'm seeing that they're doing. And I just rely on my own, you know, my own reading process, my own writing process. And I just make stuff up on the spot. I probably should be writing them down so I could come out with like a strategy supplement or something one day um but no yeah i just um, i'm always watching what kids are doing and i'm thinking how would i get myself out of that jam or how would i figure out um the answer to that question what's what are the steps i would follow to do that and i'll, I'll kind of um create them on the spot there are a lot of lessons already in there on um fluency like emphasis and where you place emphasis on certain words or punctuation choices or um, the ones that were added for Spanish are really unique to Spanish, like um, um, like the way that dialogue appears in Spanish language books. There's different, there's like these kind of triangular brackets, or mm. sometimes they don't use quotation marks, they use um, like an M dash at the beginning of a line. Oh, okay. Things like that. Those are very Spanish specific. Um, so there's, ad there's adaptations to some of the strategies to incorporate that. And then there's also additional strategies that are specific to the Spanish language. Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, even just thinking about that, you know, like how we help in English, like we move from active to passive voice, or mm -hmm. let's change this noun to a verb, or let's mm -hmm. change this verb to a noun, and let's see what that does for the meaning. I mean, mm -hmm. I think just 
having that opportunity to be in those conversations and to be thinking strategically, mm-hmm. that matters a great deal. And that, mm-hmm. that's pretty impressive that you're mm-hmm. able to do that. And yeah, so then as you think about that from a larger kind of equity focus, and I know that you've taken a, a pledge related to educator equity as you've mm. thought about your own consulting and what you're looking to do um, you know, with, with other educators and to bring more awareness to these issues. Can you tell us a little bit more about where your thinking is more widely? I mean, this is important work and, and you're making it concrete through the publication but then you're making it happen in other ways too. So I'm curious to hear more about that. Uh, Sure. So yeah, I signed on to this educator equity pledge, which is, um, was kind of co-signed by a bunch of people who do what I do, uh, speak at conferences, consult, write books about education. Um, And one of the things we were trying to do is to make sure that it's not always Um, white voices that are centered. I'll just be feeling perfectly honest. Um, At conferences, a lot of times you look at the conference lineup and it's just a lot of white people. And um, as a white person, I have a certain amount of um, privilege. And as somebody who's gotten to a certain point in my career, I also think I have some privilege and I can say um, that I would love to participate in your conference, um, but it's very important to me that I'm not taking a spot um, from somebody who um, is underrepresented. And mm-hmm. it's important to me that you include voices from bilingual educators, that you include mm-hmm. voices from educators of color, um, and that in doing so, you're bringing really important perspective and points of view and voices to your conference, but that you're also, I think, um, helping teachers of color see themselves in the leadership at that conference. You're helping white educators learn from these important perspectives and voices. Um, And that all trickles down, of course, to students and allowing students to be seen and heard and um, cared for in the classroom and that their needs are really centered and and focused on. Um, And so, so what I'm trying to do is what I did with you when you invited me to participate in this podcast, I said, I'd love to, and I'd also love you to, you know, think about who else you're inviting um, and that whenever, you know, you want recommendations of other voices, I'm happy to provide them. And um, I work with conference educators in that way. Um, I've also been funding scholarships for teachers of color um, to mm. attend conferences. Um, so I'm trying to sort of use my, I don't know what to say position um, to to kind of stand back a little and then allow other people to, um, to speak, um, to speak up. And it has meant in some cases that um, I haven't gone to the conference um, Mm -hmm. sometimes because um, either they're too far along in the planning that they, they, you know, they don't have a lot of spots open. And so I say, take my spot. Um, and, and please take my list of recommended speakers and use them instead. Um, Mm. uh, or I don't know, things just, (laughs) things just don't work out. I guess they're not really agreeing with me. Um, that's okay. Um, but I want to say that I really, am. I think still very much in a position. I haven't really talked about this publicly ever. I just sort of, you know, talk about it with conference uh, chairs and things like that. Yeah, you're the first one I've been talking about. Willing to talk about this (laughs) Um, because it's challenging. Yeah, and I feel like I'm, um, 
I'm still and really fumbling my way through it a lot. I'm learning a lot. I'm listening a lot. I'm probably messing up a lot. Um, and I'm just trying to be receptive to feedback and criticism and, um, uh, as I think we all need to be, right? It's just we need to be uh, take a learning stance and take mm -hmm. a risk and say, I'm not going to get this perfect necessarily, right? Right. So if anyone listening to this thinks I'm messing up, you can feel free to <laughs> send me a tweet <laughs> or let me know. Um, but, that tends uh, to happen. <laughs> um, but I think sometimes there's a way that um, doing new things or doing hard things or doing risky things or, you know, that we just don't do them because it feels... Um, like we're, we're too afraid of messing up, so we don't do anything. Um, but yeah. I sort of am like, let me just try and um, yeah. <laughs> right. Now, I, as we were talking before recording, and I, I know um, this is very sensitive. It, it, it's something where we also don't want to be seen in a way of, you know, oh, with the best intentions, we are reinscribing traditional hierarchies or recolonizing the academy or K-12. Like, so there's that danger that by using the position and the privilege, we're in some ways just doing all the things we've always done anyway. And yet at the same time, if we do nothing, like you just said, then what good does that do? And I know we, we share... Um, in our worlds of um, the educators that we speak with, we've had the good fortune of being connected with uh, Chris Lehman's Educator Collaborative. Um, we've come from that spirit of the Heinemann family and the, the Reading and Writing Project family. And, and I think, you know, even as you noted when you sent your response to being an invited guest on this podcast and sent us the Educator Equity Pledge, um, that um, what originally came out of work that you did with Shauna Coppola and others, like we're trying and we're probably going to mess up. And yet at the same time, I, I'm, I'm proud to say that we're trying to do something and hopefully that's reflected in this season of the podcast as well. So. No, I think you, I, from what I've heard, I think you've done a really um, awesome job of, of making sure to invite a wide range of voices and really include um, lots of different perspectives and, um, I, I commend you for that. That's awesome. Oh, well, thank you. And I also I want to say that I just like, I just really, um, I guess the reason I haven't really talked much about this publicly is that I don't want it to be about me and I don't want, um, right. I don't want pats on the back for it, you know, like it's not, um, that's not why I'm doing it. So I guess I kind oh, of just no. do it quietly and in the background in my own way. But then again, Maybe I should be speaking about it more loudly because then maybe it would inspire other people to do it too. I don't know. That's, that's one of my fumbles. I don't know. I don't really know. I'm finding my way through this. But. Right. Well, and, and again, thank you for being willing to be vulnerable and share that and, and knowing that there are many of us trying to figure it out and figuring out what we can do to, to make a positive difference. Um, so I appreciate it. I really yeah. do. So as we kind of come to the close of this part of our conversation and we think about the role of writing in our personal and professional lives, tell us a little bit more for you what it means to be a writer. What, what does it mean to be a teacher writer? And then what are the other ways in which writing affects your life? Oh my goodness. I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't use writing um, to try to speak up for something, advocate for something, share something, teach someone something, or even entertain my kids and tell stories. You know, that's even a verbal storytelling is, is a kind of writing too. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I, I can hardly imagine what my life would be like without writing. And I think that's one of the reasons that I feel so passionate about helping kids to be able to find their voice and write with um, confidence and craft mm-hmm. and be able to um, clearly say what it is that they want to say and get their ideas and their messages across and that they learn that writing can be a tool to advocate for themselves, can be a tool to change things that they don't like. Um, I'll just give you one example today. What I was doing before we got on is I was working on two different pieces of writing. One, um, I was writing an endorsement for a couple of candidates for our local board of education election. Um, mm. There are candidates, it's a, it's a hotly contested race. We have, I think, nine candidates for three seats, and there are very, very different perspectives and skill sets mm-hmm. of the people coming in. Um, speaking about equity, we're, um, we're unfortunately in our town, we have a little bit of uh, de facto segregation based on the, the concept of like the neighborhood school and where kids go based on where they are in the neighborhood. And so we're embarking on this multi-year intentional integration plan I think it's really important that we have people at the table who have a demonstrated record of standing up for kids. And, um, you know, so I feel very strongly about these two candidates. And so I was writing a letter to the editor of the local paper um, in support of these candidates. Not my usual writing, not what I usually do, but um, really important. Um, And I'm also involved in um, a local community group that's working to try to change the way that um, uh, we view security in schools, I'll say it that way. I think there's there's Mm. been a a, a big um, movement toward um, increased school resource officers or police in schools as a way of shoring up the building. And what we want to say is that actually... Um, social workers and counselors are a better line of defense against any sort of catastrophic event like that and also have a really positive impact on school climate and school culture. Um, and so I write a lot uh, you know, with this local community group that I'm working with to try to raise awareness, um, writing petitions. We write letters to the Board of Education, write letters to the superintendent, Um, write letters to each other (laughs) um, to try to articulate what we're trying to say and what our messaging is. Again, I mean, of course, you know, I write books, but there's also so much else going on in my life that I'm involved with that involves that writing that it's it's kind of hard to imagine um, how I can even get by a day, (laughs) get through a day without, (laughs) without spending a lot of time writing. Yeah. Right. Well, and it's amazing, again, to hear these themes echoing in the professional resources you provide for other educators, but also in your personal life, your community, what you do with your family, what you do with and for educators in in your local region, uh, as well as what you're trying to do more broadly. So I very much appreciate that. Well, Jen, thank you so much for being a guest. And, thank you, uh, Troy. This is a really... It's a really different kind of conversation than I've usually had. I really appreciate the, the avenues our conversation has taken and your questions, really thoughtful questions. Thank you for inviting me. Well, fantastic. And we look forward to learning with you more in the future. Thank you. Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. Discover more episodes and subscribe on your favorite streaming platforms or check out filmed episodes on YouTube. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com.